gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, one who loves us so much, the one who is so faithful to each and every one of us. We thank you for this time that we get to spend tonight worshiping you, studying your word, seeking you. Father, I pray that we would draw close to you, that we would hear your voice, that your spirit would be at work among us, and that we would just be able to give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we saw the incredible faith of Jonathan when he noted that there is nothing that, oh sorry, that it is nothing for God to deliver with many or to deliver with few. We also saw the beginning of Saul's downfall as he offered sacrifices, which he wasn't supposed to do, made a foolish vow, and then tried to kill his own son. Um, yeah, Saul's going to get even worse. Now, one of the things that we can point back to uh, up to uh, verse 48 of chapter 14 is that Saul had attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered him. That's uh, chapter 14, verse 48. This week, we begin with a command by God to Saul to wipe out Amalek entirely, something that he fails to do, which has far-reaching consequences. Let's dive in. Chapter 15, verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Just me, don't, don't you think the Amalekites would have noticed? Where are you all going? Nowhere. You stay here, it'll be fine. Right, because both the Amalekites and the Kenites were um, Bedouin tribes. In other words, they, they never settled anywhere. They kind of followed probably the seasons and, you know, for fruit and grazing for their animals and whatnot. Um, so all of a sudden, they're camping with the Kenites, and the Kenites are like, we forgot. We've got something to do over there. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking, one of the Amalekites might have gone, Something ain't right. Verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Uh-oh. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings. It's a new nickname for me the lambs, and all that was good. 
and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. So Samuel gives a command from the Lord to Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, a command which Saul does not obey. Now it's possible from the language at the beginning of the chapter that, you know, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now heed the words of the Lord. That maybe Samuel was trying to give Saul a second chance after his boo-boos last week. Telling Saul, essentially, you know what? Listen this time. I think it's important for us to note, and we've talked about this before, but God never warns us needlessly. When God warns us, we should listen. We get in trouble when God warns us, and maybe that's by the Spirit. Maybe that's by a, a brother or sister in Christ going, hey, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Maybe, for me, most often it's in the Word. can't tell you how many times I will come across something when I'm reading the Bible in the morning for my own time. And I, I look at that and I'm like, huh. And then something later that day or even maybe later that week happens that that verse just spoke to because God was preparing me. Um, so whenever God warns, listen. He warns Saul. Saul doesn't listen. Now when Israel came out of Egypt, and this is recorded for us in Exodus 17, Amalek attacked the rear of the company. And what that meant was they attacked the weak. They attacked the old who were at the back of the camp. Now, you want to attack Israel? Fine. We'll get the fighting men out front. You get your fighting men out front and we'll see what's what. But don't attack the weak and the sick and the old and the small. And I mean, that's, that's just a jerk thing to do. At the time, when we get to Deuteronomy 25, verse 19, God tells Moses, you know what? For what they did to you, one day you're going to kill them all. He's saying this to the people of Israel. And here it is, commanded to be done. You know, of course, that strategy of Amalek is no different than the strategy of our enemy strategy of our enemy, right? He doesn't come after us when we're together. He doesn't always come after us when we've been spending a lot of time in the Word or a lot of time in prayer. He doesn't come after us when we've had enough sleep. He doesn't come after us, right? When does he come after us? When we're alone. When we're tired. When we're disturbed because of something going on. When we haven't been in the Word. When we haven't been in prayer. I have on more than one occasion told somebody that I hadn't seen in church in a while, you need to get in church. I, I know I'm trying. I'm like, you don't understand. This happens a lot with people that come to me for counseling. They come to me and they tell me how they're struggling with this, that, and the other thing. And I've told you this before. I always ask them the same question. How much time are you spend in the Word? How much time are you spend in prayer? I haven't seen you in church in a while. Right? And that's, that's Satan's plan. He gets you off by yourself. He gets you away from fellowship with God. He gets you away from the source of your strength 
and your security and your confidence. And then you're easy pickings. You're, you're the old and the weak and the sick and the small at the back of the camp. Why didn't Amalek attack those in the center of the camp? He knew they would lose. Satan's no different. So they warned the Kenites. We talked about that a bit. Now I have to ask this question. Is this just and fair of God? Right? When we read verse 3, I don't know about you, but it always strikes me a little bit. Go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill man and woman, infant and nursing child. Infant had a different meaning in Hebrew. It was actually uh, usually from after or up till the time you were weaned, which at that time was up to five years old. And then nursing child, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. So the first thing I'll say, and I'm borrowing this particular one from Pastor Chuck, um, when we ask, well, why would God order them to wipe out everybody? First and foremost, for, foremost, for, foremost, foremost, God does not owe us an explanation. He's God. Um, he is allowed to do whatever he wants. But we know that whatever he does is always just and fair. And in so doing, he always does what's right. So even if you don't like the next few reasons I'm going to share with you, if you believe in God and you believe that he is holy and righteous and just, that his character is flawless, then you can know that whatever he does is always going to be the right thing to do. So apparently, wiping out the Amalekites this way was the right thing to do. But there are a few other reasons, because I'm really okay with that reason. However, for anybody listening who might want a different reason, let me give you a few possibilities. Number two, they were a vile people. They practiced horrible and detestable things. They would take their children. These were among those people who worshipped Molech. And Molech was that metal god. They'd set him in the middle of a fire. They'd have the fire burning until the god was glowing red, his arms out, and they would put a live baby in the outstretched arms of this glowing god and burn that baby alive while they had a sexual orgy around the fire. Now, anybody who does that, I'm okay with God killing them. That really doesn't bother me all that much. Actually, it doesn't bother me at all. So the reality is, they probably would have wiped themselves out anyway. Because you can't live like that and prosper as a society. Number three, God was using Israel as an instrument of judgment for the actions of the Malachites past and present. Right? And God can do that. God can use people as his instruments of judgment. He did that. Right? When, I, I love the book of Habakkuk. Because there were times where he used Israel as that instrument. There were times where he used other nations against Israel. In the time of Habakkuk, God tells Habakkuk, you know, I'm going to do a thing that if I were to tell you what it is, you wouldn't believe me. And Habakkuk goes, all right, I, I want to know. And he says, fine, I'm going to use another nation to judge my people Israel. And Habakkuk's like, what? what? That ain't right. 
right? They're, they're a wicked nation. They're, and God goes, I don't care. My people have sinned. My people have broken the covenant. My people have abandoned me. They refuse to repent. They refuse to return. And I'm going to bring the Babylonians in to take care of it. Right? Because God can do that. Number four, and this one I think is important. I think they're all important, really. But God was protecting his people from the, the Amalekites' corrupting influence. We know the history of Israel. We know what's going to happen as we go through the next few books, right? Constant cycle that we saw in Judges. Good leadership, following the Lord, prospering. Bad leadership, going into idolatry and, and you know, famine and war and, and drought and so on and so forth. And they repeat this cycle over and over and over and over and over again. Well, God was sparing them that, at least from the Amalekites. He told them, when you go into the land, get rid of everything, everybody in the land. They failed to do so. And that's why they had so many problems. So those are my reasons. I think those, you pick anyone you like. I think number one is the most important, and that is that God is God, and he doesn't owe us an explanation. Uh, um, finally, right, so we talked about this. Killed everybody, but kept the king alive. They destroyed everything despised and worthless, but they kept the best of everything. Is that what God said? Verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Man, there's a lot of S's. Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he has gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, <laughs> I'm sorry, the S's are just getting me. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel says, bull. Right? Samuel said, then why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And then Saul said, well, they, notice, you're going to love this. They have brought them back from the Amalekites. For the people, the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said to Saul, shut up. Right, be quiet, but same difference. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. That was not what he was commanded to do. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people... 
The people took the plunder of the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Samuel said, As the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is, a, is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He also has rejected you from being king. Oh, God regrets making Saul king. We're going to talk more about that, so keep that in the back of your mind. Samuel rebukes Saul for his actions. Saul claims first that he obeyed the Lord. Right? I obeyed the Lord. What are you talking about? Then why do I hear the sheep and the oxen? Well, it was the people's fault. Right? He admits, right? He confronts him again. I obeyed the Lord. I just saved Agag alive. But the people, the people kept all the best, wanting to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, something to consider is Deuteronomy 13 tells us that animals taken in battle from a pagan nation were not allowed to be used as sacrifices. They could take those animals as plunder and eat them, but not as they couldn't use them as sacrifices. And additionally, they were commanded not to do it. Even more importantly. So we get one of the most famous verses in 1 Samuel. To obey is better than sacrifice. I love this word, to obey, here. It means to hear and then attentively consent to obedience. To hear and then attentively consent to obedience. It's not that you, you tried. It's that you did it. And you did it to the very best of your ability because it was God who commanded it. Saul claims a spiritual reason for his disobedience. How dumb is that? God is never going to contradict himself. He's never going to say, thou shalt not. And then you say, well, I did, but I did it for a good reason. No. What part of thou shalt not is confusing to you? What part of obedience is better than sacrifice is really a struggle? Because it's not about giving some pseudo-spiritual reason to justify our sin. When God says it, we listen, and by the power of his Holy Spirit, we obey. Now, if you're anything like me, you don't always do that perfectly. Or even kind of close to perfectly. <laughs> but still, we try. We're going to talk more about that before we get done today. God will not honor us if we claim we have disobeyed him for a spiritual reason. I remember years ago, um, there was a young lady who I was talking with and um, she was having trouble in her marriage and, and she told me, you know, I think the best thing that we ever did was live together before we got married because that way we, we got to learn about each other's faith and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, hold on, I got I to gotta get a shovel. Right, I mean, come on. That's not how that ever works. Psalm 51 Verses 16 and 17. 
David, in repenting of his sin for, with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, that's what Psalm 51 is, says, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now imagine if Saul confronted, uh, Samuel confronted Saul and Saul went, you're right. I'm wrong. I saved Agag. I shouldn't have done it. Yeah, you know, the people kind of pushed me into this, but I'm the king. I could have said no, right, if that's even true. I don't think it is. Right? He could have been brokenhearted. He could have been contrite. But no, he defended his wrong actions. So Samuel tells him, your rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. And your stubbornness is like the sin of idolatry, which is the opposite of a broken spirit and a contrite heart, of course. Um, and under the law, both the sin of witchcraft and the sin of idolatry were punishable by death. And he says, rejecting the word, you have rejected the word of the Lord, so the Lord has rejected you. Done. Now this is applicable for anybody today because a lot of people are rejecting the word of the Lord in the gospel. In Luke 16, 31, Jesus talked about the rich man and Lazarus. And you remember towards the end of that account, the rich man cries out to Abraham and says, Father Abraham, just send Lazarus back and tell my brothers so they don't come to this horrible place. And Abraham says they have the law and the prophets. And he says, no, but if someone rises from the dead, they'll believe. And in Luke 16, 31, Abraham replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Saul rejected the word and the Lord rejected him. Today, people, when we share the gospel with them, they are rejecting the word of the Lord. And ultimately, that's going to lead to God rejecting them. Verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. What? Can you, is it really repentance of your sin when you blame somebody else for it? Lord, I'm sorry I sinned against you, but that woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I did eat. What is this you've done, Eve? The serpent, you know, that creature you made, he tricked me and I ate. Right? Oh, I've sinned, but it's only because the people are so rotten. It's not my fault. That is not true repentance. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Who's he asking to pardon his sin? Samuel. Can Samuel pardon his sin? No. And return with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said to him, I will not return with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king. Samuel turned around to go away. Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today 
and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul. Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. I love this part. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. In other words, what does it matter now? And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to the house, to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So a big section here that we're going to kind of break down. So Saul admits his sin but blames the people. This is not true repentance. Samuel refuses to pardon Saul because it really wasn't Samuel's place. Saul should have been repenting to God, but he wasn't. Samuel tries to leave. Saul grabs his clothes and tears it, and Saul turns around, or Samuel turns around and says, fine, God's torn the kingdom away from you. He finally gets Samuel to come back with him, but it's only to keep face in front of the elders. And I think essentially the reason Samuel consented to this is if the people knew that Samuel had declared Saul no longer king and that God wanted somebody else to be king, if the people knew that, well, there might have been some chaos and anarchy in Israel. Saul blames his fear of the people. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. And I think the fear of man is one of the most horrible traps we can fall into. Jesus told us, and I didn't write this verse down, I should have, but Jesus told us, don't fear the one who can kill you. Fear the one who can kill you and then cast your soul into hell. Right? What's the worst thing that another human being can do to us? You know, kill us, kill our loved ones. But for those of us who know Christ, death is not the end. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I would be okay with that or that I wouldn't defend my family or anything of the sort. I'm just saying that's pretty much the worst thing anybody can do. But it's so much more important that we fear God. Because, you know, he can do a lot worse. For those of us who knew Christ, we'll never face that. But just think about the snares that we fall into because we fear people. Right? Well, I, I don't know. If I share the gospel with them, they, they might reject me. They might get angry with me. They might not talk to me anymore. Yep. That's possible. That might happen. But didn't God tell you to share the gospel with them? Oh, I don't know. You know, if I, if I confront that person, uh, it, it could be really bad. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I, I'm not suggesting anybody seek out conflict, but sometimes conflict is necessary. Jesus told us, blessed are the peacemakers. And I love that. Right? Because there's a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. 
a peacekeeper will compromise and make all kinds of concessions just to try to keep the peace. A peacemaker will do what's necessary for there to be true peace. And sometimes what's necessary isn't fun or pretty, but it's got to be done sometimes. Let's not fear people. It doesn't do us any good. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Now, I love this, this phrase, strength of Israel. Because what it means, it's the bright object at a distance that we are traveling towards. So think lighthouse with a ship, you know, approaching land by night. What's the lighthouse there for? To show them the way. Right? Or, or I used to deliver pizzas years and years and years ago. I always liked delivering pizzas because I like pizza. But one of the things where, I, where we lived back, back in California, I delivered pizzas in Upland, um, there were a lot of big, fancy houses in weird places that were, everything was pitch black. And, you know, most of the time, people were nice enough to leave the porch light on. Sometimes they weren't. This was before you had a cell phone. So I used to actually carry a flashlight in my car. Um, but the point I'm making is, you pull up to a house, and everything was dark, but you could see the light on over the front door, which meant you knew where to go. So when he talks about the strength of Israel, this splendor, confident, victory, some of the other words that go along with it, but this bright object that we are traveling towards, well, that's who God is. On our entire journey in our lives as followers of Christ, he is the bright object we're traveling towards. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And so when we make God the center of our life, when we make him the priority of our life, when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, we can know he's going to take care of everything else. That's what Matthew 6.33 tells us. And so we follow him. And when we follow him, we will never walk in darkness. And he says that the strength of Israel does not relent. In other words, God does not change. This means God's decision regarding Saul was sure and final. Now, I know I said we were going to get to the word regret. I still promise that we will. In verses 32 through 34, Saul completes what God commanded by killing King Agag. Samuel never sees Saul in person again. And then the Lord regretted making Saul king. I do like the part that Samuel hacks King Agag to death in front of the, you know, before the Lord. I, I mean, I can only imagine what a bloody scene that would have been to hack. I mean, could you could just stab him through the heart and be done with it. But oh no! He was hacking him some Agag. Let's talk about the death of King Agag. Why 
was Saul's disobedience such a big deal? Well, this is revealed to us in the book of Esther. Esther, who was Mordecai's cousin, Mordecai raised her after her parents had been killed. But Esther and Mordecai were descendants of the family of Kish. Who was Saul's dad? Saul, son of Kish. Esther was a descendant of Saul. That's in Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Additionally, Naaman, the antagonist in the book of Esther, anybody want to guess who he descended from? In Esther chapter 3, verse 1, Naaman, the enemy of the Jews, is called Naaman the Agagite. Naaman is a direct descendant of Agag, the king that Saul did not kill. Now somehow, Saul sparing King Agag allowed his line to continue. Whether while he was in captivity he got someone pregnant or whether, um, you know, because Saul kept him alive, his wife got away with the kids. We don't know exactly how it happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. But somehow Saul's disobedience allowed the line of Agag to continue. But you see, God was not only trying to spare all of Israel, he was directly trying to protect Saul's family. Remember, Naaman built gallows in his front yard with the hope of hanging Mordecai from those gallows. God was not just protecting the nation of Israel from genocide. He was directly trying to protect Saul's family. And Saul's disobedience almost caused the genocide of his people. And we'll spend ample time on that when we get to the book of Esther. So, I'm going to make this comment. When God says he is working all things for our good and he asks us to trust him and to obey him, it's because he knows what's best and he knows what will happen if we don't. And we've got to remember, God's omniscient, we are not. God's omnipresent, we are not. God's omnipotent, we are not. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, and he is everywhere all at once, throughout all time and space, right? Try to, just try to comprehend that, and you'll, you'll break. So when God looks at Saul and says, you've got to kill this guy and wipe out all the people, it's because he knew what would happen if Saul was disobedient. He also knew Saul would be disobedient. So he already had a plan in place through Esther anyway. But, how many times has God looked at one of us, shown us in his words, spoken to us by his spirit? You know, don't do that. Don't go that direction. Or said, hey, you know what, you, sh you should do that. That's, go there, go there. We didn't listen. And then we get to the consequences and we're like, Lord, I'm so sorry, I've made a mistake, please fix it. You know, there's been times where I'm sure it's happened to all of us. We've obeyed God even though it didn't make any sense. When we got to the other side of it, we were like, oh, yeah, oh, I get it now. Cool. <laughs> you know, it's so much more fun to be on that side of it. 
regretted. Now, we've seen it three times in this chapter. And this is an interesting word in Hebrew. Because it says the Lord regretted making Saul king. And regretted is not the best translation of this word. For example, if I were to say, boy, I, I really regret buying that car. Well, I don't. I like my car. But what if you said that? I really regret buying my car. That means that you, that you made a bad decision. Maybe you made a mistake. Maybe you, you shouldn't have done it. Right? So did God make a mistake? Did he make a bad decision? Should he have not made Saul king? No. But the word means consoled, to take solace in, or to be comforted in a time of sadness. That is not at all what we think of when we think of the word regret. God knew how things would turn out with Saul. He didn't make a mistake. Instead, it would seem from the language here that even though Saul failed and God was displeased with this failure, that God consoled himself, right? He took comfort in the fact that he had a plan, right? He, he didn't have to worry. He's God. He doesn't have to worry. Perhaps he was comforting Samuel. And uh, were we going to get to chapter 16 tonight, which we're not, but if we were going to get to chapter 16 tonight, the first verse, the Lord says to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? So perhaps this term speaks of the fact that he was comforting Samuel or that he was comforting the nation, knowing that he had chosen a new king for Israel, a, new, a king that was better than Saul. Right? It doesn't mean that God changed his mind. What it means is Saul's disobedience broke his heart. Those are two very, very different things. So, we're, we're not going to get to chapter 16, so I'm going to close with this little bit of application, and then we're going to pray. We've talked about before that Amalek in Scripture is a type of the flesh. It represents our life apart from God, our life apart from Christ. And we are commanded to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Romans 8.13 For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. When we fail to do so, it will always cause us problems. We must remember, of course, it's not about just making ourselves better, but being transformed by the Spirit of God through the renewal of our mind, according to Romans 12.1. It, it hearkens, I don't use that word enough, it hearkens to Jesus' words that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? Saul left just a little bit of Amalek alive. And it caused problems for the Jews for centuries. Right? If we just leave a little bit of the flesh, right? People sometimes have their pet sins. It's one of my favorite things to hear from people. Well, I, I mean, I know it's not right, but I mean, it's not as bad as it could be. Oh, my gosh, do you have any idea what you are setting yourself up for? James talks about this, right? Sin conceives, it gives birth, then when it's full grown, it brings forth death, right? Temptation's not a sin. 
But if you give in just a little, then sin is conceived. If you feed that conception, then it gives birth. And if you feed that birth, it becomes fully grown and it consumes you. I know this firsthand. I'm sure you all do too. If you don't, let me know. Uh, we might need to worship you instead. But I'm pretty sure that we all have the same issues in regard to sin. We just, we just let the tiniest little bit in and we don't recognize how destructive that can become. So in putting to death the deeds of the body, does that mean we can't have any fun? Does that mean we have to live a life of asceticism? There's another word I don't use often enough, right? Asceticism is a fancy word um, that is used of the monks who walk around beating themselves, right? It's self-punishment in an attempt. Don't think of Monty Python. It's a... <laughs> when I saw you laughing, I knew what you were thinking. It's, it's this, basically, it's self-punishment in order to try to become more spiritual. So you don't eat, you don't drink, you don't sleep, you beat yourself, you whip yourself, right? All in trying to make yourself more holy. The Bible doesn't tell us to do that. Right? It's not about that. It's about living a life by the power of God's spirit under the guidance of God's word that honors Right? Not a perfect life. Not a sinless life. Because we're not going to be able to do that. But a life where we follow Jesus. Where we put him first. Where when we do blow it, we come back and we repent. And we return to following him like we're supposed to. So next week, we'll get into chapter 16. I did not mean to take 40 minutes on that chapter, but I did, so that's what we needed to do tonight. That's all there is to it. Next week, we'll get into chapter 16, where we will see Samuel anoint David as king. Kind of cool. And one of the most interesting things that we were going to get to tonight, so I'm going to share it with you, give you a bit of a heads up for next week, is after Samuel anoints David for king, that's, it was after that that Saul brings Samuel into his, or Saul brings David into his house. I'm messing up names left and right. After Samuel anoints David, Saul basically hires David to play the heart for him when the distressing spirit comes upon him. Now you have to think about the heart of David. David knew that he was to replace Saul. David knew that he was now the rightful king of Israel and that Saul had, by God, been removed. Yet he served him. When we get later into chapter 16, we'll read that David loved him. You wonder why David was chosen king? Doesn't take much. But that's next week. Until then, let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your beautiful word. Thank you that your Holy Spirit leads and guides and teaches. And, and uh, I can only just praise you that you wanted us to spend more time in chapter 15. And I'm okay with that. So, Father, I pray for your hand of grace to be upon each of us tonight. Help us to take the things that we've learned, that we've talked about, that we've heard from your word, and make them a reality in our lives by the power of your spirit. For the rest of this week, Lord, as we all have more days and more things to do, Lord willing, Lord, we, I just pray that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would watch over us, 
and that we would be able to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.